everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Years ago, under the Obama administration, in an era that now feels like a lifetime ago, there was a push within the Department of Justice to rethink policing. It took the form of the Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services, or COPS, and from 2014 to 2016, the chief of staff for that program was Malenka Clark. In that role, Clark devised funding strategies and partnerships to advance community policing and police reform. She left that position to assume her current role as the president and CEO of the Hudson Weber Foundation. And she joins us now to talk about her thoughts on police reform and how that work fits into the context of her current position with Hudson Weber. Malenka Clark, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yes, Good morning. It's, it's great to have you here. Also, in the interest of full disclosure, Malenka is someone I know quite well because I sit on the board of trustees at the Hudson Weber Foundation. Um, Malenka, let's start with talking about your thoughts on what's happening around the protests and calls for reform of police departments for defunding and dismantling of police departments right now. Sure. Uh, what, what do you think about those ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it has been a profound moment of reckoning. Um, uh, this, the incident with George Floyd and all that preceded it, I think, underscored um, a couple of things. And obviously, I know we'll, we'll have a chance to talk about today conversations that have been happening for some time. Um, but I think what's been really interesting is um, that it's happening in this moment of the pandemic, and I think that that destabilizing that has gone with that, um, which also, again, is uh, connected to our vulnerability, but also has highlighted, you know, the disparate impact on African Americans, which is something, again, about inequality. And I do think those things together um, have have undergirded a destabilizing moment where we're not in a moment of status quo where we can reimagine that in really creative ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, it's profound how the conversation has shifted in a couple of weeks um, to where we are, yes, you know, defunding the police is something that, you know, now is being talked about. Um, and I think that there are um, ways to unpack what that can mean. And I, you know, there are folks out there that are, are fully abolitionists. But I do think it's um, it's a wonderful opportunity to have a constructive conversation about where what that could mean and why we would ask for that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so let's go back to before you came to Detroit and were working uh, in the Department of, of Justice under the Obama administration. Uh, uh, talk about the work on community-oriented policing as part of the COPS program and uh, talk a little about the really comprehensive report uh, that was issued, I think, in 2015 uh, from from the COPS program about policing reform, about 21st century policing and what it what would be required for it. Sure. So just folks, so um, folks are aware the Office of Community Oriented Policing Services was established under President Clinton with the crime bill of 96. So it's got a a fairly long footprint and its mission is to really um, support best practices around the, uh, around community policing. And folks are like, well, what does that mean? You know, 
the idea of it is not is is that you're really enabling police departments, law enforcement agencies to co-produce public safety with the communities that they serve. It's really a vision for what law enforcement should look like in a democratic society. Um, so the cops office again has has been around for quite some time, but certainly um, in uh, you know in 2014, um, with the Mike, there were there were a series of incidents that led up to Michael Brown um, death in the, in Ferguson and the and the uprising that happened around that. In that very moment, President Obama said, "I'm going to establish a task force." He announced 11 task force members. They were from um, it, it certainly included law enforcement leaders, but mm-hmm. it also had community activists on that task force, academics. So really diverse group of folk um, that were leading the charge. And um, it was, a, a, you know, the charge was within 90 days to come up with a set of concrete, actionable recommendations for the law enforcement community to address the issues that plagued the nation and had been, have, have plagued the nation for generations. And so the cop's office was the staff to that um, task force report. And I was chief of staff and, of course, chief of staff, um, for the production of that report, and it involved, you know, seven listening sessions across the country. We had a hundred witnesses from all walks of life, from from very different parts, di- different constituencies, and stakeholders, to offer their thoughts about, um, you know, what what the future of policing could look like. And it was out of that intensive and very transparent and public work, you know, it was full on engagement. Um, out of that came this report of the of the president's task force um, delivered to the president on his desk um, with really, like I said, concrete, actionable um, ways of moving forward. Yeah. Uh, and talk about some of the things that were in that report and how they might have made a difference if the last four or five years in this country had unfolded uh, with those ideas kind of at the center of, of uh, our efforts. Yeah. So I think um, it's probably, you know, thematically, I'd, I'd say there are probably key three themes that are highlighted within the report, um, and none of which should, should surprise us, but certainly, you know, building trust and legitimacy in the communities where you are. That's something you have to do before a moment like George Floyd. You know, there's a trust bank, you contribute to it. Um, you and, and the ways that you do that are to... Um, you know, have to do with the culture of your policing force, which is another big theme in the report. And how do you get a culture that, um, you know, is operating in community that has a guardian mindset, not a warrior mindset? How do you actually get to the co-production of of public safety? You know, that's engaging the community in what's happening in the department, being transparent about your policies, and not just transparent, but actually having the community provide input on those policies there's a whole suite of best practices around the type of training that you ought to get. Um, you know, we've heard about implicit, implicit, implicit bias training, which, of course, is um, right now uh, in conversation in Michigan because of the le- legislature's efforts to get that to be a required part of training. Um, but also procedural justice training, um, fair and impartial policing training. Uh, one thing to note about that is it related to culture 
and not just training, but, you know, the way that the departments themselves are operated, if the officers within the departments are treated with respect, mm-hmm. if the decisions within a department are, are fair and transparent, there's actually research that that in turn affects how those officers go out into the community and how they conduct themselves. And all of that doesn't mean anything without oversight and accountability. That's the huge piece. You can have all the policies in the world Mm -hmm. if there's no sense that there's accountability around that. And I just say, I mean, relating this to the George Floyd incident, you know, the images are so horrific, but what is also so clear is that the officer has, he's gazing at the spectators. He has no absolute feeling that he's going to be held accountable for what he's doing. And I, I would I would put that in the context of, you know, it's what's happening in the police department, but remember that the police department is part of a larger system, and that system of accountability doesn't just lie within the department. You, then you start talking about the prosecutor's office. What's, what's, <laughs> what's the accountability there? What are the laws that police officers are held against in terms of what's required to prove a, um, to prove a charge? And those look very different for police officers, and there's lots of conversation around that, too. Um, So all those things go together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Malenka Clark. She's the president and CEO of the Hudson Weber Foundation. Uh, She came to us in Detroit from Washington, where she had been the chief of staff for the COPS program in the Department of Justice under the Obama administration. We're talking about the work that that COPS program did to try to reimagine policing back in the middle uh, of the last decade and what things might look like today if we had used uh, that blueprint as the way to go forward. Would we be seeing some of the police brutality against African-Americans that has, of course, inspired massive demonstrations and protests across the country. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Let us know what change you want to see in policing and the role of law enforcement in our society. Is it time to completely overhaul our police agencies and build something completely new to take over those roles? Or do you believe that we can get this done with smaller, maybe more incremental changes. Uh, I especially want to hear from folks who are participating in the demonstrations here in Detroit and uh, our suburban communities. Uh, As you're marching and making your voice heard, what are you thinking about what would change police or how they should change? Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Malenka, after the Obama administration leaves office, uh, Donald Trump is elected, and he appoints Jeff Sessions, who was a senator from uh, Alabama, to be the attorney general. What did Jeff Sessions do with all of the work that came out of the COPS program? Yeah, so there, there were a couple, of, a couple of things that happened. Um, the report, which we obviously, in the time that we had left from its publication, which we um, were promoting and supporting through grants, technical assistance, um, and also additional research and the like, um, because remember, you know, all of most of most of what's in the task force report, not all of it. There's an important federal piece, and I want to get to that. But you know, there are eighteen thousand individual law enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. It's a highly, (laughs) policing is highly local. 
Um, and yet and still there, there are structural, common structural issues that, that, you know, that we need to talk about and focus on. But I, I would say that there were shoots of light, right? There were departments that stepped up that took these recommendations um, and, and ran them through the department. And, and yet and still, there are, you know, there are police departments that do have positive and strong relationships with their communities. I just want to note that. But when Sessions came in, not only was this report obviously, you know, yanked, <laughs> yanked off, not even put on the shelf, probably put in a, in a trash can, but I, you know, the other uh, really important thing that the Sessions um, DOJ did was do, was he issued a memo that basically said, we're going to take a look essentially at all the tools that the Obama administration had been using mm-hmm. um, to strengthen, uh, I say strengthen, um, law enforcement agencies and, and their um, relationships with their communities and the like. So one of, one of those things is they, did a, they um, completely pulled back on the civil rights pattern and, pa- and practice um, investigations. And so, you know, in the Obama administration, there were 25 investigations that resulted in 14 consent decrees. Sessions come in, comes in, literally Baltimore, um, and you may recall the Freddie Gray incident that precipitated um, unrest and the like, and there was an investigation on the pattern and practices in that community. And, the, you know, three days before the consent decree settlement was about to be announced, Sessions came in, the department, to say, wait, we don't want to sign on to this. And as you can imagine, in the years since, there, there has been... It, it, if there's been one investigation, and I, I don't even know that there has been, <laughs> so that part of the Civil Rights Department completely shut down. In the COPS office, we had a really innovative program called Collaborative Reform, which was um, a dynamic project and process by which um, the COPS office would come into a community by invitation, work with a department to do a full assessment um, you know, and the department could prioritize certain areas, but an important piece, it was a third party neutral coming in. They would, you know, interview community members, get input from all, um, you know, not just from the police department, but from, from folks that interact with the police department and issue a public report with findings and recommendations and then come back a year later to talk about progress against those recommendations. That program is completely eviscerated. And it's a real shame, I think, for, um, you know, what's, what's interesting is that when these moments happen, chiefs are looking for solutions. They're looking for help, and they want to show action and activity. When you take away tools like that from a chief's perspective, you know, basically the option is to fire the chief, right? That's mm-hmm. what the mayor is. Mm-hmm. Uh, left with not not a constructive kind of and and you know sometimes that's the absolutely appropriate step to take but you know I think it was a pretty short sighted view of of the role that the federal um, justice department could do to help to help law enforcement agencies yeah yeah okay we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue our conversation with Malenka Clark president and CEO of the Hudson Weber Foundation we're also going to get to your calls. Mark in Northville, Elena in Detroit, Mike in Detroit, Keith in Trenton. We'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work them into our conversation here. Stay with us on Detroit Today.
Your city. Your town. Your voice. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined us. My guest is Malenka Clark, president and CEO of the Hudson Weber Foundation here in Detroit. She is also the former chief of staff for the COPS program, uh, community-oriented policing uh, services in the Department of Justice under the Obama administration. We're talking about policing today, which, of course, we are talking about a lot in America right now, and whether there were clues from the COPS program and an important uh, task force that was put together to imagine or reimagine policing in the middle of the last decade. Uh, if we had used that as a blueprint uh, for reforming police uh, in this country, would we be in a different space right now? Would we be watching as an officer in Minneapolis sits sta- with his na- uh, knee on the neck of an African-American man until uh, that man is killed? Uh, would we be seeing these demonstrations and protests in the streets right now. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. I, I want to go to a caller uh, before uh, we get back to, to Malenka Clark here. Mark in Northville, what's on your mind? Hey, how are you, Stephen? Hey, good, how are you? Good. Love the show. Always have. Oh, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, you know, I'm a white guy living in suburbia. I got a 9 and an 11-year-old, and since they were able to really listen to what I have to say, I've always told them that if the police come to the house, unless I'm completely incapacitated, don't let them in. Don't tell them anything. If they want to search your bag when you're walking down the street, don't let them do it. Hmm. I, but what I want to say is, what they should be teaching in schools for everybody, white, black, poor, rich, are your rights and how to conduct yourself when the police ask you for your ID. Do you have to cough it up or don't you? Hmm. I don't know. I've lived here for 45 years. I'm a pretty astute guy. If I cop asking for my license, I don't know if I'm supposed to give it to him or not if I'm just walking down the street. I have no clue. They need to teach skills, not just how to fix a flowing toilet, hmm. but how to interact with law enforcement for everybody we need to know our rights because they are being changed and trampled on weekly i have no clue what to do with the police and i've told my kids and and again i'm a white guy from suburbia tell my kids just don't deal with them unless there is unless i'm there or i have sent my attorney which i don't exactly have one but don't say a peep to anybody shut your mouth until i get there don't talk to them don't say good morning. How was your day? Just don't talk to the police ever. And, this, and, wow. and I'm a white guy again yeah. in suburbia, but I, I, that's my view. Yeah, I think that's a really, really fascinating uh, point of view, Mark. I'm really glad uh, you called. Uh, Malenka Clark, one of the things that is true about the conversations we're having right now is uh, that we we are trying, I think, to redefine or better define uh, the line between the authority that we vest in police officers to keep us safe, really, uh, but but I think there are a lot of other things that the police are are, are up to, um, uh, but and the rights that we have 
as as individuals. Uh, talk about policing in a way that wouldn't violate people's rights. What would that look like? And are there examples uh, of where that works better than it does here right now? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, what's interesting, I, I at the beginning talked about this notion of co-producing public safety, and I do think just, you know, the caller is highlighting that um, that doesn't only help shape policy in police departments, uh, I should say law enforcement departments, um, that are informed by the community, but there's also, you know, knowledge and education on the part of the community side, certainly about their rights. I mean, I think, however, what has been so profound, profoundly disheartening is that for um, African Americans, you can absolutely know your rights, but that <laughs> that's not going to protect you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, everybody has heard about the talk that families, black families, have to give their children and their mm-hmm. boys in particular about how to act when they interact with the police department. And that's that's like life-saving conversation that needs to happen. Yes. Um, and it's not necessarily to articulate what your rights are. That's not what the talk is about, right? <laughs> right. So, um, so there's that. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, finding the line around authority is, uh, is certainly an important, and that's, you know, we are in a democratic society, and those lines need to be clear. But I think the truly creative conversation is is this reimagining conversation mm-hmm. and defund the police sounds radical and I know it turns people off. But I do think, you know, if you were going to start over and think about the types of investments you would make to have a truly safe society, that that the police departments would look different. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, you could ask any, uh, you know, law enforcement agencies, certainly ask the sheriffs that run the jails, for example, and ask them you know, how much of their time are dealing with people in crisis and their tool, the tools that they're provided are to bring that person to jail, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is the worst place to take someone who's having mental health issues, for example, substance abuse problems. Our jails are filled with folks like that. And it's not surprising that the jail population has exploded or, you know, as we were making disinvestments in our mental health, um, um, capacity um, and and care for that population and the like, and you know, um, so I I think that it is a really productive conversation to be asking what are the police doing and right. aren't there things that they ought not to be doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Mark, I, I really appreciate uh, you calling and sharing uh, that perspective with our listeners. Let's go to Elena in Detroit. Elena, welcome to the Hi, show. Good morning. Hey. There's a, a thought that I have that I think has to get into the conversation, and that's the importance of profiling. Uh-huh. Profiling is absolutely necessary for communities like Livonia to be able to fill their budget. Hmm. So there's at least one-third of the budget of Livonia is listed as miscellaneous, which is tickets and fines. Right. And if you ever went to court in Livonia, it's filled with Latinos and black people with white police officers and a white judge that just absolutely, this is all day, every day, all week, day after day, year after year, of people who have been pulled over on 96 going through Livonia to go to work. Sure. And as you know, Detroit's insurance is 10 times, often 10 times the amount of our suburban counterparts. So people are driving without insurance. 
Latinos have been taken off the road. People without um, documentation have been now taken Our driving privileges have been taken away, so they're easily profiled. So everybody knows black people aren't going to have insurance, and Latinos aren't going to have a driver's license, and it's just a stamp passing through. Hmm. And it's a really important part of understanding how municipalities are funded right. and the necessity of profiling. And the other thing that I want to announce also is that at Harper Woods Police Department today at 6 o'clock, there's a demonstration because... 38-year-old yes. Priscilla Slater was died in police died in custody. custody. Yes. yes. So six o'clock at Harper Woods. And yeah. thank you, uh, Elena. I, I really appreciate the call and the thoughts and uh, your nod to that demonstration and and to that young person uh, who lost their life in uh, in, in custody of the Harper Woods uh, police. Um, Malenka, the, the 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 call reminds me again of the. I guess the very the very broad nature of the kinds of reforms that we're talking about. In other words, um, this is not an easy subject to unpack. There are so many different dynamics at work in policing right now that are problematic, and they connect to things that uh, that for a lot of us uh, seem normal, right? So in Livonia, for instance, they fund a lot of their policing activity with uh, these the revenue from these tickets that they write uh, all along 96. Uh, and, and there is no question that uh, if you go out to Livonia and sit in the courts there and watch who's coming up for having been cited uh, for these things, that you would see far more black and brown people than live in, in the city of Livonia. I mean, it, it is so layered with uh, with with issues, that one problem, and and I think that does get us to that that stage where you have to say we really just need to rethink all of this. That uh, there aren't incremental changes that could that could really deal with the breadth of of, of issues we're talking about. Yes, I know. I th- I think that's right. Um, there's not a silver bullet, um, and and to your point, you know, this conversation starts with this horrific incident of police brutality and the impact of police brutality on African-Americans in particular and and black and brown people, I should say. Um, But that's really, you know, the front door to a system that is brutalizing people of color. And and that's the larger conversation. And as your caller pointed out, this whole question around fees and fines, um, which was so well highlighted by the civil rights pattern and practice case in Ferguson, um, where, it, as you may recall, similar findings of, you know, you've got a system that is, uh, you know, harassing <laughs> African-Americans as they move through the community and then literally is paying for itself off the back of that community. Mm-hmm. And then in turn, and this is, you know, as, as you know, um, Hudson Weber funded uh, the Vera Institute of Justice to do an, an analysis of the Wayne County, drivers of the Wayne County jail population and indeed found that many folks sitting in the Wayne County Jail are sitting there because they can't pay their fees and fines over suspended licenses. Right. And then you connect that back to <laughs> the particular issues here um, in our city with insurance and then poverty. People don't have the dollars, so, you know, we're putting them in jail. It's, you know, all of it is kind of the least constructive um, way <laughs> to address those, those pieces. But I do want to say that, um, that absolutely this conversation would be anemic if it didn't point to 
the larger systemic forces and issues that we need to address. But I also don't want folks to think because the problems are so big that we have to throw up our hands, right? Like there are, there are, um, you know, the task force was mentioned, um, the task force report we've been discussing. But in, in all of these areas, there are solutions. People have been working on this. We just need to focus. We just need the political will. And we need to stop uh, and this applies to many facets of society, but certainly with our justice system, we have to start operating off an evidence base and not a worldview that is completely impacted um, by bias and racism against African Americans. There's so many things we tolerate in this country because they impact, you know, African Americans more so than anyone else. Yeah. That's got to stop. Yeah. Okay, Malenka Clark, President and CEO of the Hudson Weber Foundation. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks very much for being with us. Thanks, Stephen. All right. uh, We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and talk about entertainment and media portrayals of police. After three decades, the show Cops is off the air. We're going to talk with NPR TV critic Eric Deggins and professor of Africana Studies Kimberly Moffat about what that signifies and about the way law enforcement and race are portrayed in mass media. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Mike in Detroit, Keith in Trenton, we will get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. I'll be right back with more Detroit Today.